Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, wherever you may be. Welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope, for those of you happening across our broadcast, webcast, podcast, whatever cast we're casting at this point, uh, for the first time, is our daily journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. And that's certainly where you come in. We want to answer your biblical questions, whether it's a biblical take on uh, the current controversies that can swirl about us, both inside and outside our circle of Christian friends. Hey, uh, you want takes on the uh, latest uh, issues uh, that are uh, gaining traction on social media? We'd be happy to take a look at them from a biblical lens. Maybe you'd like to explore a little bit more up close and personally. Uh, the greatest treasure we have south of a personal relationship with God himself, and that is his divinely inspired word. If you'd like to dig deeper into the scripture, maybe a few of those passages that have raised more questions for you than giving you answers, bring them on. We would love to uh, uh, deepen your understanding of God's Word, your appreciation for this amazing treasure we have before us here today. Uh, if uh, maybe you've been asked a tough question about your faith in Christ and His Word, or maybe uh, you've always had a tough question percolating in the back of your mind, never found a place where you felt like you could get that answer uh, to a question in a non-threatening, non-judgmental environment, that's certainly what we like to provide here each and every day. Bring those questions on, and we will uh, tackle them as you share with them. The events of the day, even the events of tomorrow through biblical prophecy, we are all over it. So uh, please feel free to join on in our conversation. Joined here as always by my right-hand man, protege, all-around good guy, Sean Richards. Sean, how can people connect with us? Well, if you aren't threatened by the prospect, you can join us by email at questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can engage with us live at our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. Click on the Watch Live tab. You'll be sent to our streaming platform and, of course, our YouTube page, A Reason for Hope. Uh, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson is also on Facebook, but noting YouTube and Facebook aren't dependable social media sources. If we are not live streaming there from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time or Pacific Post, Daylight Savings, you can feel free to still join us on our website. They can't ban us on our own platform yet. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, noting that point, if you want to engage with us, note if you want to access us, website will be the most prevalent, the most simple, and of course the one we'll be keeping an eye on the most during the broadcast. But if you are joining us on YouTube and Facebook, the advantages are that you'll be notified when we are going live. On our website, we have a countdown to the next time we are going live. So if you're not in our respective time zone, 5 to 6 p.m. every weekday, that of course will let you know when the next event will be taking place and we'll be streaming and providing for you to listen at your own time, previous broadcasts on Archive. The email address, though, is the primary way we want to receive your questions, so take advantage of that. Spelling is on any of our video streaming platforms, but if you are joining us on our Reach Radio or Radio Affiliates, that is questions 
that's plural, questions, F-O-R-Hope at gmail.com. And as long as the questions are sincere about the Bible and in the form of a question, we will be happy to address them for the next hour. Yeah. So uh, having said all of that, let's uh, kick off the broadcast with a word of prayer. Father, thank you that you're uh, the unseen guest at each and every one of our gatherings here. We want to hear your voice. We want to draw close to you. We want to know your truth, your whole truth and nothing but your truth. And we need your help so desperately for that to happen each and every broadcast. So fill us with your spirit, guide the conversation. I pray that you would sovereignly bring those questions that you want answered during this time to our attention here on the broadcast. Thank you for loving us, and thank you for allowing us to walk in your light and your love in these increasingly challenging times. In Jesus' name, amen. That is true. Now, to start us off, anything to report as far as the world is concerned? Um, You know, again, we've uh, told you to keep an eye on uh, Israel. Just a real brief prophecy update, I guess, uh, Israeli intelligence has uh, revealed that there is a whole new nuclear uh, underground facility being built uh, almost next door to the current nuclear facility in Natanz in Iran. Uh, The uh, possibilities of what are going on there, I think, uh, are almost uh, limitless. Uh, We have shared with you earlier in this week how uh, consistent reports have come out of Iran that they have now achieved 90% enrichment on their uh, uranium which is uh, more than uh, crossing the threshold to be able to make uh, an atomic bomb. Uh, Israel is not going to put up with that. Uh, We talked a little bit about how Israel has changed their strategy. Prime Minister Naftali Bennett uh, saying that uh, instead of uh, going after the arms of the octopus, they are now going to go after the head. They have even made some uh, pointed remarks to uh, Syrian uh, President uh, uh, Assad that uh, his palace would not be off limits from a a military strike if he continues to facilitate uh, the presence of Iranian uh, Republican Guard units and uh, the development of uh, missiles that could threaten uh, the Israeli population there in his country. I think that was also a not-so-veiled threat to the mad mullahs in Tehran, uh, knowing that Israel reserves the right now not just to go after their hardened nuclear facilities, but even the people giving the okays and the go-ahead as far as developing nuclear weapons are concerned. So, as always, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Uh, You know, it's our uh, take, uh, and that and uh, $3.50 will get you a cup of coffee at Starbucks. Uh, that uh, we'll probably see uh, a conflict break out in the Middle East probably within a month or so. Uh, We're not uh, offering offering prophecy there. But certainly things do seem to be coming to uh, a head as far as uh, Israel's tolerance of Iran and uh, their nuclear ambitions in that region. Uh, Hearteningly, uh, we have seen the United States take a uh, more direct and supportive role in terms of Israel's wargaming for a potential strike on Iran. So uh, we are want to remind you of that famous scripture in uh, Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, God promising to bless those who blessed Israel and curse those who cursed them. As long as the United States is on Israel's side, uh, I... Uh, I think uh, we are uh, in good shape. So uh, that's pretty much a wrap-up on what's happening in the world. You want to talk about other social issues that are going on, controversies, uh, boy, uh, an awful lot of uh, bombings of uh, pro-life crisis pregnancy centers going on in this country, uh, being defaced by graffiti with threats 
like uh, if uh, you stand against uh, abortion, uh, we will stand against you, watch your back, and that sort of thing. Uh, it does seem like this uh, battle for life is becoming more pitched here at home as well. And a worthwhile one at that, so know where you stand and why. And if you have questions clarifying the information behind that position, note that that's more than those who only have emotions will stand against you. And yep. I suppose firebombs, but the emphasis is being made in point. If you're basically taking a stand for the truth, then there are two that stand with you. God plus one is a majority, as Martin Luther was once quoted as saying. Uh, going out to our questions, here's a question we received by email. Regarding, this is from Dave, uh, Jesus' prayer to his Father, where he said, Not my will, but yours be done. The question is, how could the Father, you note God, but note we make a distinction in persons, not in the being that is God, and Jesus have different wills? So I guess with that pretext, this is a fair discussion on the Trinity. When we're talking to people about the Trinity, it's obviously easy to grasp the scriptural basis for which we come to that conclusion, but then when it comes time for us to explain it to somebody who's not in on the Christian lingo, it can oftentimes feel like nailing a board to your own head. You just look silly. So if we're going to understand the Trinity and be able to articulate it to someone, even if it's us, who is asking what, how exactly this works, the best place to start is the dictionary. What do we mean by Trinity? We do not mean a triad, meaning three beings and three persons that all sound similar, that all call themselves the same thing. That is a polytheistic approach towards the Trinity. The second is we don't believe that there is a uh, Unitarian being with three different modes. That's what's called the heresy, by the way, bad thing, of modalism. Heresies, in my opinion, are not good. Yes, Uh, that Jesus is able to, or the Father is able to, function as one of the members of the Trinity at any given time, that they're just different identities, or as the name suggests, modes, that he performs based on his given circumstances. And the reason why we reject those is because of the biblical data. We have examples of each member of the Trinity functioning independently from each other at the same time. So what then does the Trinity mean? Well, the Trinity, in order to, I guess, keep up with the trend, his three facts that are put on the table. The right. first is monotheism. We right. believe in one only and one. only one God. That is identifying the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, but I repeat myself, the God who has revealed himself in history right. in the person of Jesus Christ, that there is one and only one God. Now, if that was the only fact on the table, then we would be committing the heresy of Unitarianism, the most popular and prominent members of this heresy today are Jehovah's Witnesses and Oneness Pentecostals. So be careful not to settle for one-third of the description. The second fact on the table is that there are certain things that only God, that true and living, only one God, can truthfully say about himself. And if those things are applied to anyone, they're speaking as if they were the one true and living God, or they're lying, and that needs to be understood. So the second fact is there are only certain things that God can truly say. The most 
simple example would be the creator, the one who creates and maintains the universe. The most straightforward illustration and example of this is in Revelation chapter 4, where it notes, you're worthy, O Lord, to receive power and glory and honor, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. We go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So if there's that assignment of a role, assignment of an identity, assignment of a capacity to create from nothing, to have created this universe from nothing, and they're called as such in Scripture, then we got a conclusion to come to, that this is the true and living God, the one God. The third fact on the table that defines the Trinity is that there are three unique and independent persons, not beings, persons that share those unique and exclusive characteristics. The Father is called Creator in Isaiah 64, the Son is called Creator in John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 2, and many other places, and the Spirit is called Creator in Genesis chapter 1, and in Job chapter 33, and many other places. So if we're, and and again, we could note there are behaviors and activities in other passages like Isaiah 48, 16, Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, I'm just firing these off so that we can actually get to the question for the sake of brevity. If you have questions about it, just let us know. We'll be happy to go into more detail. The emphasis... Oh, (laughs) Mike asked, is it Trinity from the Matrix? No, she is one being, one person, but thank you for the the brief uh, reprieve from the serious nature of this. The three facts then on the table, once again, leave us with some splaining to do, to quote Ricky Ricardo from I Love Lucy. Either we have one God with three persons. We have three gods, which contradicts the first statement, and of course our view is incoherent. We have one god with three abilities, which flies directly in the face of certain revelations were given about that exclusive being, flies in the face of the first and second premise, or we have to come up with a word for this, which we did. It was Trinity. These are the facts on the table that you have to specify to anyone who's challenging you on this, be they Muslim, be they Jehovah's Witnesses, be they atheists, in order to understand what we believe, we need to understand what we believe. Right. <laughs> That's basic fundamental logic. So if what we believe is that there are three gods, we're polytheists, not Christians. You can call yourself Mormon if you'd like. They espouse that and many more. If you call yourself a Christian and you affirm only one God with no persons apart from that God within himself, you need to stop calling yourself a Christian. You can call yourself an Arian, you can call yourself a Jehovah's Witness, you can call yourself a uh, Muslim, but you can't call yourself a Christian by affirming the scriptures we're told about this being. Now, with that then in place, all the facts on the table as to how God has revealed himself, it's obviously unique from anything we're familiar with. I'm one being one and one person. You're one being and one person. Though we are the same kind of being, a human being, that's what we are, who we are is independent. I am Sean, you are Scott. So if that's then put in place, how do we frame this into what kind of being God is? Well, he's one being, that as much can be said. What he is, functionally, is God. Who he is personally is different from what he is. We're used to one being one person. The persons of the Trinity are as follows, Father, a relational title, Son, also a relational title in relation to the Father, and Spirit, which is a descriptive title, but 
excuse me, made distinct from the Father and Son, because in John chapter 14 and 16, the Son says that he will send the Spirit. And he also makes a distinction in John chapter 16 that the Father gave him the authority not to send himself or the Father, but the Spirit. So we make these distinctions, and there are other places as well. Right. So understand we're going with the most data here, what explains the facts in the table. Now, if Jesus is able to function independently from the Father, to be sent by him, and the whole universe doesn't fall apart, right? That there's still yeah. someone maintaining the universe, there's still someone omnipresent and enacting that sovereign will. Right. Who then is Jesus praying to? Not God, but God the Father because God the Son is talking. Thus, the communication is at work. The nature that we see at work is also God, because God the Son and God the Father are every much as God, because they are that one being. The only difference is the Son is the only member of the Trinity to have adopted human nature, which we see in passages like in the book of Jeremiah, where it notes God is the God of all flesh. If the Son takes on flesh, how else would he relate to God, who is the God of all flesh? as his father, not only, that relationship which they had from eternity, that he's not going to stop, but then would he suddenly function as the perfect man, a man bearing the nature of God, and suddenly become an atheist? Or would he continue that relationship like we ought to be as flesh? Thus, the illustration is being made in point. If Jesus is praying to his father as a flesh-and-blood human being, He's doing what every flesh-and-blood human being should do, pursuing fellowship with his Father. If God the Son had an eternal relationship with the Father and sharing that perfect unity, being God, that hasn't ceased. He's still able to communicate with him and still wants to communicate with him on this earth as he did in heaven. But note, with the introduced feature of human nature, he is now not only desiring, but dependent on the Father That's right. for everything that something of flesh needs. That is not only his breath, that is not only his existence, that is not only his purpose, but also noting his ability to live out a life that we call godly, which, which is what split this into two theories. When Jesus prayed, was he doing it because he had to, because he wanted to, or because of both? And the answer usually goes into one of two camps. Either Jesus was fighting his sinful fallen nature, which is in direct contradiction with Scripture, by doing the same thing that we all need to do when we're struggling with our fallen sinful human natures, and he, of course, not having that sinful nature, was acting out a model for us, and this is supported in Scripture. In him you have a perfect example. But then we also ask the question, if the the whole showcase, I guess, of the prayer in the garden was just acting out an example for us, then why was it so stressful for him that it caused him to sweat drops of blood? This is obviously a very personal and stressful situation for Jesus, and thus the question that we were being asked by Dave, is there a conflict within God, and thus an incoherent view? And the answer is no, because what did Jesus end up doing by acting out his perfect nature? He submitted to the Father's will. Yeah, he, he didn't pray, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He didn't. He did he, say that. He did say that. He didn't say, nevertheless, if your will and my will are two different things, I'm going with mine. He never said that. No, he was simply modeling his human nature, which is the other theory, that Jesus was fully man and fully God, that just as God the Son doesn't cease to be deity, God the Son becoming the God-man is a unique event in human history. 
We saw, as John chapter 1 and verse 14 says, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus said, no one has seen God at any time, or the Apostle John made this observation, no one has seen God at any time, but what did he say about Jesus in relation to that? Exactly what was recorded. Right. We saw the glory of the Father, everything that makes him who he is. Now, if that, then, is the kind of guy you want to know more about, that's the point. If, on the other hand, we see Jesus modeling within himself who he always was from the beginning, but just with skin on, then what do we have to account for? The new feature, the fact that he has a human nature. He's sweating drops of blood. He's stressed. He doesn't want to die. Nothing does. But in order to be able to physically die, God is spirit, John chapter 4, right? Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So he's not going to be able to physically die or experience any of the things that the author of Hebrews says about us as our perfect high priest. Right. That's what he was doing. So if that then was experienced, if that then what was what was accomplished, he's not going to take shortcuts. He's going to, as a, another wise mind whose name escapes me at the moment says, play by his own rules and do so fairly. The rules he Dorothy set, Sayers yeah. said that. Yeah. The rules that he set for us, he followed to the letter, and that includes stress, that includes fear, that includes desires to escape death. But in the end, do we say that Jesus resisted the cross? We have this, you know, uh, Last Temptations of Christ image of Jesus trying to sabotage the will of his Father and for the rest of his life in order to get out of being the Messiah? No, not at all. But if, on the other hand, we go with what we have in the text, the conclusion of the Trinity doesn't make Jesus praying to himself incoherent, because the Father and the Son are different persons. We don't say that Jesus sinned, because ultimately, what did he do? He submitted to the Father's authority, he went to the cross, as we'd expect a Father and a Son to do, and as we'd expect God to do, maintain coherence within himself. But what's the difference? Jesus is man, the Father is still spirit. So in Jesus's manhood, in his human adopted nature, which he still maintains, by the way, he continues that perfect fellowship with the Father the same way that we do, not by struggling and trying to get out of it and ultimately just coming to the Father's way of thinking because he has no choice, but by recognizing, loving, and by faith, trusting, though I repeat myself in the word faith the will of the Father, even at the expense of his immediate human desire, which is self-preservation. Now, that's not easy. It won't be easy for any of us, but if we're called to that state, we know that our God went first and modeled that for us as something that is possible based on a perfect relationship with the Father, which has been made possible by who? The Spirit, whom Jesus sent in his name, and which the Father gave the authority to send in the first place. So note all that information. I know it's a lot to keep track of, but Dave, you just this is like, you know, theology 808, right? Yeah. This is a lot of information that get, you need to have. deep territory there. A man. lot of information that you have to keep in track and keep on biblical terms. And I could go into more detail, but I'm starting to cry. I can't imagine how you're doing. So... I'll leave it at that. You can maybe fill in some gaps, but this is the point that's being made. We don't say that Jesus and the Father had different wills. They ultimately followed the same purpose that they agreed on, according to Revelation 13, before the foundation of the world. Right. Not a surprise. Yeah. yeah. But if, on the other hand, we acknowledge Jesus's human nature, we don't say that overcame Jesus's divine nature, his perfect nature, that perfect relationship with the Father, 
but it was honestly expressed, like all of us should be doing in prayer. Do we say that it was a model for us? You can, but do we also say, and this is what I would emphasize more strongly, opinion, not dogma, did Jesus act out what everyone would in that circumstance, but did so rightly? And everyone in this ballpark would say yes. So note that point. What did Jesus do? Did a desire conclude an action? Well, no more than a temptation is a sin. Again, as Martin Luther said, you can can't prevent birds from flying over your head, but you can't stop them from making a nest in your hair. Right. Jesus was, as the author of Hebrews said, tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. That includes a desire for an alternative to a very worst-case scenario, like, oh, in this case, having the wrath of God poured out on you. Yeah. <laughs> that's not fun, yeah. but that's the point that's being made, Dave, and let us know if that's clear. I know it's not, but hopefully we've presented it biblically. Yeah. There you go. Let us know if that's uh, clear for all of you as well. Um, got uh, Debbie and Mike joining us. Here's a question from Isaiah, who says, all Scripture is significant, so who was Sosthenes? Sosthenes is an interesting cat in the Scripture. We're really not told a, a whole lot uh, about him. He's mentioned the book of Acts. He's also mentioned the beginning of uh, 1 Corinthians. Uh, some people believe there were two Sosthenes, Sosthenes, uh, that are being talked about in Scripture. The first uh, was an individual uh, that we're introduced to in Acts chapter 18. He was the individual who took over the leadership of the synagogue after a fellow by the name of Crispus, the leader of the synagogue there in Corinth, converted and began following Paul. Well, this Sosthenes uh, led a group uh, that wanted to see the Apostle Paul tossed in prison at the very least, killed if possible. Uh, the Roman proconsul Gallio uh, just thought their charges were silly and about their own Jewish laws, and he as a Roman had wanted nothing to do with it all. Uh, and so, uh, you know, he ejected the, uh, the Jews, and at that point, uh, Sosthenes, this fellow that organized the campaign against uh, Paul, was seized by the mob that was there to get Paul and beaten within an inch of his life. So uh, some people speculate that a couple things could have happened there, that the Jews were angered that Sosthenes hadn't been able to persuade Gallio to try Paul, uh, and so they made him the scapegoat, or Greeks outside the court just beat Sosthenes out of anti-Semitic principles. They just didn't like Jews very much, so they which beat them up. Which possible. Which is totally possible. So, you know, this is definitely a Sosthenes who was mentioned here. He was a guy who definitely thought he was going to be on the receiving end of a beating, but ended up in that situation. Interestingly, a fellow by the name of Sosthenes is also mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 as part of uh, the introduction to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he said, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and by our brother Sosthenes to the church of God in Corinth. Uh, very interesting. Uh, here we see Sosthenes is a brother in Christ. He is uh, not, I don't think, the co-author of the letter to the Corinthians, but he was probably what's called an amanuensis, a scribe that would write down the things that the apostle Paul had to say. Now, Here's where the debate comes in, Isaiah. 
Was this Sosthenes, another Sosthenes? Because it was a fairly common name, could very well be. There are some who will say that it could be the very same guy that opposed Paul in Acts chapter 18, uh, got beaten senseless. And, uh, you know, there's an old saying that a conservative is a liberal who's been mugged. Well, perhaps Sosthenes uh, was a, uh, op- an opponent of Paul who had been mugged, and it caused him to reconsider his position. Uh, the fact that Sosthenes was well-known to the church at Corinth uh, gives us uh, a lean to that it may very well have been the same man. And much like the Apostle Paul preaching the faith he once tried to wreck, so Sosthenes and Paul really hit it off because uh, they uh, had that in common. Sosthenes very well may have been an enemy of the gospel, the leader of that synagogue who had to give all that up to follow the Lord, much like the Apostle Paul, and ended up being instrumental, uh, being used by God to uh, write his word, at least the letter to the uh, Corinthians, the first letter that we have here. So it's very possible that they're the same man. Can we know that 100% for sure? Probably not this side of heaven, but uh, sure seems to be leaning in that direction. Isaiah, I hope that helps you out. Anything else you'd add about Sosthenes? No, just note that uh, actual people had actual experiences, and that's documented for us. If we don't know everything about them, then what is included is relevant, and that uh, certainly was interesting. And uh, the the other thing i just throw out there, and I think you bring this up in a wonderful way, Isaiah, is that uh, Scripture doesn't have any filler in it. There, there, you know, it wasn't like uh, God got done inspiring his word and an editor said, well, it's okay, but it's a little short considering the subject matter. Can you expand it a little bit? Uh, every scripture is inspired by God. And uh, some of these individuals that we would consider throwaways or just uh, hi, how are you at the end of uh, letters, uh, some of them really have uh, remarkable stories to tell if we do a little digging. So, uh, don't ever look at a genealogy and just say, oh, that's just filler. There's uh, definitely life lessons that we can learn along the way. Uh, you know, I first started reading the Bible, uh, Isaiah, back in 1973. And, you know, I remember coming to a place thinking after about a year or so, huh, I wonder if this is going to ever be like yesterday's newspaper to me, you know, kind of boring. Oh, yeah, I've read that. Well, that was 1973. More water than I'd like to talk about has gone under the bridge since then. But uh, I'll tell you, I just feel like I've just scratched the surface as far as the amazing treasures that are there in the Word of God. So uh, keep asking those great questions, and uh, I think you're definitely on to something. Nothing in Scripture is there just by happenstance or to no good purpose. All right. Um, Here's our uh, contradiction for the day. This is, uh, of course, regarding a discrepancy in who Saul's sons were. In 1 Samuel 14 and verse 49, we're given a list of names, whereas in 1 Chronicles 8 and verse 33, we're given a different list. Now, in order to answer any contradiction claim against the Bible, what is the first and most important thing to do when talking to someone who levels this up? You guys did such a great job uh, talking about contradictions uh, when you and Peter were talking yesterday about ad hominem uh, attacks. You know, like someone who said, ah, the Bible contradicts itself, and you're an idiot for believing in that. Well, there's two thing- parts to that. Uh, first of all, there's the charge that the Bible contradicts itself, and then the idiot part is the ad hominem part of it all. But, uh, you know, you talked about three steps that we need to take if we're going to answer somebody's charge that the Bible contradicts itself, like 
uh, in this example. What are those three steps, and then let's apply it to the Scripture? Well, first, you need to know what a contradiction is. If you are told something, you should know something about the thing of which you're dealing with in order to deal with the someone who's leveling the charge. Right. A contradiction is a violation of the second formal law of logic that A does not equal non-A. In a plain English sense, it means that two things in the same way and in the same sense can't both be true and at the same time cancel each other out. So if the family of Saul—this would be an example of an actual contradiction—was listed as Jonathan, and let's say, for example, just note and entertain this for a minute, mentions Jonathan by name, the 1 Samuel 14—where was their verse again? In verse 49, says it was, of course— Jonathan, Jesui, and Malkushua, and then it mentions his daughters. If then the other account said Jonathan's sons and his only sons were three entirely different names, that would be a contradiction. Either Saul had these sons that are named, or John or Saul had these sons which are named, and the two names in no way combine or reconcile with each other. If the preface is first set, yeah. What? One scripture said uh, Saul had these three sons, and another scripture said Saul never had any children. Or he had three entirely yeah, that, different children, was, and these were the only children he ever had. Yeah, yeah, that would be a contradiction. And that requires more details than these two passages provide. So that's the first stat, just knowing what a contradiction is. Notes, not a difference in detail, not just something that I throw out there. If I can mention two verses and not be held accountable for it, like this individual, I need to actually follow this through. And that's step two. Call their bluff. Ask them where and when is there a contradiction, and right. that's where we get to the verses. In 1 Samuel chapter 14 and verse 49, it notes, the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Jesui, and Malkishua, I believe is how you pronounce that. Malkishua. Malkishua. Yeah. And it's also noted that Abinadab is another name for um, Jesui, or uh, Malkishua, which is important to note in a moment. Right. But are these Saul's only sons? No. no. We also have names given us in the same book, by the way, and in the second book of Samuel, named um, Ishbosheth, and others who succeeded him. We also note that Abner had a puppet for a while, but the point being made is this, who are relevant to his genealogy, his firstborn son, and his immediate successors. Right. Those are who are mentioned. So then we go to First Chronicles chapter um, 8, and note that they specify for us in, let's see here, Going off their website again, these are obscure ones, and you can tell we haven't rehearsed this, otherwise we'd be dangerous. Uh, this is Samuel's sons, First Chronicles 8 and verse 33. Oh boy. Uh, Near begot Kish, and Kish begot Saul, and Saul begot Jonathan, Melchushua, and Abinadab, and Ishbaal. Now, that's an interesting group of names. One more name, and the nickname that specified for us in the previous chapter, or in the chapter right. in First Samuel. Right. However, they don't include, I guess, the detail that this isn't the only time the family of Saul is mentioned. Why didn't they include the details given to us in verses 35 through 43 that go into detail mentioning the one man that was left out, 
and also the details surrounding the guy that was included in this list. If I go on to say, well, Scott Richards, is, or uh, say you uh, contradicted yourself when you introduced this program. You said your son is Sean Richards, but you failed to mention the fact that you also have a daughter. Well, your daughter, Sarah, is a tech consultant living in Scottsdale right now. I don't think it's very relevant to mention her during a Bible Q&A radio broadcast. Likewise, if we're talking about the genealogy of a king of Israel in 1 Samuel, who's relevant? The ones that are going to die at the end of the book. Right. On the other hand, we go to 1 Chronicles. Why is Ezra reiterating this information and including extra details? Because they're rebuilding their history from scratch and getting all their facts right, and then some. More information is not a contradiction. A inclusion of additional details or nicknames aren't a contradiction. And if you put this out there towards the person, this is the third step, you say, is this a productive conversation to have in the first place? If I could clarify to you, and you're already, I'm sure, giggling if, once we say this out loud, that the family of Saul, the first king of Israel, has a coherent genealogy in his first generation of children, would you consider giving your life to Jesus Christ? I wouldn't say yes to that. Yeah. No one would say yes to that. Yeah. And if, on the <laughs> other hand, we're going to get into something meaningful, then I'd be happy to have this conversation. But when it comes to contradictions like these, which, again, I barely be bothered to remember as far as the verses they provide, not only do they misrepresent the text, but they infer on it something that's not even a contradiction to begin with, which is extremely common. Yeah. So know what a contradiction okay. is. So have that settled in your mind. Right. What, it, what is a real contradiction or what could be an addition of detail, uh, another new way of describing the same person? Uh, these are not contradictions. Know what a real contradiction is. Which is A does not equal non-A. Two things in the same way, in the same sense, can't both be true and cancel each other out. Yeah. Additions don't cancel. Yeah. For instance, the Mormon claim that Jesus was born in Jerusalem contradicts the fact that he was born in Bethlehem. They try to harmonize it by saying, oh, Jerusalem is part of the district of, that included Bethlehem Ephrathah. Well, that's A, made up out of whole cloth. B, we have no record of that in ancient literature. Yeah. And C, who did you really hear that from? Yeah, so, so that's a contradiction. This is not. The second is Calder Bluff, where and when. Show me in the text where the distinctions can be made and clarified that these two things are saying things that cancel each other out and both claim to be true. Right, right. We can say, well, what if it's another Saul <laughs> who's allowed to have three kids, <laughs> or four in this case? What about in the rest of the chapter? If you read one more verse, oftentimes it is often going to clarify the issue. I'm saying often too much, but this is just how the flow of the brain works. And the third and final step is productivity. Is this relevant to the person you're talking to? If the goal is, well, you're wrong, that's not going to be hard. They don't even know what a contradiction is if they would make this sort of accusation. Right. If the goal is, I'd like to introduce you to this guy named Jesus, then starting the conversation with, well, what about the three sons of Saul? I don't know anyone <laughs> who thinks like that, and I, I've known some interesting people. So remember that. Know what yeah. a contradiction is. Make sure that you call their bluff. Call their bluff. And make sure that it's relevant to your actual goal in the conversation. Yeah, otherwise you'll just be chasing rabbit trails forever. Hey, here's an interesting question. It comes from Carl. Carl asks, how do you know for sure if your prayer has actually been answered by God? How do you know for sure? 
I'm throwing it out to you. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I, I spent some time on the last one. So, okay. Uh, when it comes to the reason why we know anything for sure, people can get kind of fussy and say, well, you can't know everything 100% because there's always another explanation. What if it's coincidence? What if it's just things that would have happened anyway and you just attribute or associate it with God? Well, the one difference between answered prayer and circumstance can be maybe clarification maybe a promise made in advance, and a specific one at that. This is difficult for people who are praying, say, for instance, for a spouse to come into their life, or for a medical diagnosis, perhaps, to uh, end up panning out in the negative, which is actually a positive, if you right. follow the, the lingo. When we are asking for answered prayer, and when we receive answered prayer, obviously thankfulness should be our first regard. Why? Because you brought the issue to God, and this circumstance panning out can be attributed to a sovereign God, just carte blanche. But yeah. we don't want to stop there. We it's it's make... only good manners to say thanks. Yeah. Right? And even if it's not directly something that you can thank for God, it's always a positive thing. However, Christian ethics aren't determined by what's best for society. We want to know what is true, and that's a good question, which, uh, who is the individual who asked? Carl. Me? Carl. Carl, when we're talking about this issue, we need to make sure that when we hold God to a promise, it's A, one he's actually made, and B, when God comes through on his promise, we're thankful for the right reasons. Right. So, for instance, if I pray to God that I want you know, someone to be brought, or I got a medical diagnosis, I want to be cured, I end up physically dying, and I'm standing before him in heaven and going, why didn't you answer my prayer? Well, you can give the funny response, which is, I did answer. The answer was no. Now you're here with me, what's the problem? Yeah. If on the other hand, you're to say, I made this prayer and you didn't come through for me, that brings with it an expectation and one that God is not obligated to fulfill. Some people don't like to hear that, but this is the point. A lot of people have cashed in on their faith by defining terms for God and then finding out the hard way that he doesn't play that game. Or defining prayer as telling God what to do. Which isn't how prayer is defined in Scripture. When we, for example, see Jesus' model prayer, most of the conversation was acknowledging our needs before God, but it was really just establishing an ongoing relationship. Or even Jesus modeling prayer when the going was in the ultimate sense tough in the Garden of Gethsemane, voicing your desire before God and saying, nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. The goal was fellowship with his Father, not or, to get out of the cross. Or trusting that God has a bigger and better plan than maybe what we understand. Thus the relationship. And that's why Paul, and I'm spacing on the verse at this moment, but the passage reads, um, let your prayers... With all thanksgiving and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. Yeah. Philippians chapter 4 and, uh, and verse uh, 6 says, yeah. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now we have his word on that, that yeah. when your requests are made known to God, you will get them? No. No. The peace of God will be the result. The pretext was anxiety, the sort of things we're concerned about, like a medical diagnosis. Yeah. And if that's ultimately resolved with prayer, what's the actual answer? The one we have in writing. It's not that we'll get what we want, it's that we'll know what God wants. 
the goal of prayer isn't to match God's will, to, ma- to basically coerce God into my will, it's to match my will with His. And if we understand that, then we don't set ourselves up for these kind of bizarre practices like, I prayed, I got an answer, but how do I know it wasn't just circumstances? Because the goal of prayer isn't to get circumstances to match, it's your attitude to match your circumstances. And if your attitude matches God's, then, well, that's what would have happened anyway. (laughs) That would eventually be setting yourself up to succeed. But if, on the other hand, we set ourselves up to dictate for God what His business is, we don't have that in writing, and thus we can't be thankful for it. Yeah. Yeah, we have to be careful of presumption, for sure. But sometimes, in an attempt to avoid presumption or maybe feeling like, oh, you know, I I don't want to get burned by bringing a request to God and then not having Him answer, uh, sometimes our prayers become incredibly vague. You know, for instance, how do you know God's answered your prayer if you just say, Lord, just bless all the nice people in the world? Well, I'm not sure that's really a measurable result you're talking about here. You know, we can bring our desires before the Lord. In fact, in that passage in Philippians chapter 4, the language here is really specific. It talks about your requests, your prayers and supplications. A supplication meant a very specific uh, desire that you would bring, say, before a ruler. You know, you want to just come before them and say, you know, uh, it'd be nice if you improved my neighborhood. You'd probably want to come and say, I'd like you to see you do this and this and this. There's nothing wrong with being specific in prayer, but the, the safeguard in all of this is we should be specific in our prayers, but we should also be trusting in our prayers. We come before God, we'd say, Lord, this is what I would really like to see you do in this set of circumstances. However, not my will, but yours be done. I trust that you have a better plan, and I'm going to rest in that. And the, the wonderful thing is, if we're doing prayer right, it's ultimately going to bring us to that place where the peace of God that passes all understanding guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's how you can know you're doing it right. If your prayer makes you anxious, if it makes you angry, if, if it uh, just is, is something that makes you feel like, oh, why am I bothering doing this anyway? Then you're not doing it right. If you come before the Lord knowing that the Lord says he wants us to come to him with, your, with our request, little children, is my Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, uh, the Lord said in Luke chapter 12. Uh, God isn't stingy. He's a good father. We're told uh, by Jesus himself in Luke chapter 11, you are fathers. If you have a child who asks you for a loaf of bread, are you going to give him a stone? If he asks you for an egg, are you going to give him a scorpion? If he asks you for water, are you going to give him a snake? I tell you, no. And if you, being evil, know how to give your children good gifts, how much more will your heavenly Father give even the Holy Spirit to those who ask? The ultimate gift, Himself. Right? Himself. So if God's willing to give us himself, then really he's got everything else covered. So Carl, I would say that one of the best ways to know if God has really answered your prayers or not is, first of all, is it producing peace within your life? Secondly, don't be afraid to be specific about what you'd like to see God do in prayer, but ask as well when you make those requests, say, Lord, Uh, Let me apply my heart to wisdom as well. Let me see the situation as it unfolds in your hand. And and, uh, I'm not going to try to be your consultant. I'm not going to try to be the one sitting in the director's seat. Uh, Instead, Lord, I'm going to let you do 
uh, desire uh, that you do what you want to do in this set of circumstances. And, uh, you know, I, I think uh, you can't go wrong in that. The other thing that we can do to make sure that uh, our prayer requests are specific and are answered by God is pretty simple. Pray according to God's word. Uh, you know, I love what Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says about this. You know, trust the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. I, I love that because what it says is this, when I let the Lord's understanding guide me, then I've got wisdom. When I say to God, you know, Lord, I want to trust in you with all my heart. I want to lean out on understanding in all my ways. I want to acknowledge you even through prayer. And I have your promise that you're going to get me where I need to go. If I come before the Lord with that in mind, and I pray according to the scripture, you know, I love what First John 5 says about this. And this is the confidence that we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if he hears us, we have the request which we have made of him. Now, I love that. How do we know we can pray according to his will? Well, easiest way is just to bring your desire before the Lord and say, man, Lord, may your will be done there. Secondly, if we see something in Scripture that we know is true, and we can pray according to that, like, for instance, if you've got a beloved non-believer in your life, you can say, Lord, I know it's not your will for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance, and so I align my will with yours. Please bring this loved one to salvation. The Lord's going to honor that prayer. And, uh, you know, you're going to see the Lord just do wonderful things and provide every possible opportunity for that person to come to know him. So pray according to God's will. Pray according to God's wisdom. That is realizing that God has a higher and better plan than we do sometimes. we got to align ourselves with that. And uh, pray expectantly. You know, don't be afraid to pray specifically, but always guard those specific prayer requests by saying, Nevertheless, this is what I'd like to see happen here, but I trust you. Your ways are higher than my ways, and your thoughts are higher than my thoughts, and I'm going to rest in that. So let us know if that helps you out, Carl. Now, I uh, would be remiss if I failed to cover our bases here. Another question that's oftentimes asked, especially in the days of Christian scholarship right now, we made a lot of presumptions in our Trinity discussion earlier today, where people who call themselves scholars in the Hebrew language, whose name I won't mention, say, well, that's not true. There's plenty of gods. I mean, if you read Psalm 82, it mentions that God stands in the congregation of the mighty. The word mighty is Elohim, the gods. When it talks about the in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, it's the plural for three or more, Elohim. And when we even read in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, it says in verse 5, the acknowledgement for even if, and if can be translated in the same way that Jesus, or that a Satan accused of Jesus. If you are the Son of God, it's since, right? The working assumption, turn this stone to become bread. Paul the Apostle says, for even if, since there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or earth, notice the acknowledgement to set the context, as there are many gods and many lords. The Bible itself acknowledges that there's multiple gods. So how do we come to this conclusion about Trinity in the setting of monotheism when the Bible itself teaches henotheism, that we believe in one God that's relevant to us. For us, it says in verse 9, there is one God 
and, or excuse me, verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 8, for us there is one God, the Father of whom are above all things, for we are for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. So we, I think, are due, our audience, who are going to encounter people who will say this, especially on the internet, and especially even a part of Christian ministries, that will say, no, the Bible says that there is more than one God, just one that we regard as the highest. What would our response be to that? Well, uh, essentially, we would go back, I would go back to the basic term. Uh, first of all, we are told that the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. What does idols uh, mean? The, the word idols literally means nothings. Uh, in uh, Psalm 95, we are told that uh, the gods of the nations uh, have mouths, but they can't speak. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have noses, but they can't smell. Those who make them are like them. But so the gods of the nations of... do exist. They just can't talk or move or see. Well, or... they're inanimate oh. objects. They're nothings. They're being described the way the text describes yeah. them. Yeah. So, you know, we have to be careful. And uh, when people say, well, you know, for instance, uh, you know, I said you were gods. You will all, you know. You die know, like men. Die like men. Uh, you know, we always leave that second part out of it. And when the term gods is used there, it's the word Elohim. It literally means a mighty one or a powerful one. Ones it, with power. It can be used to describe the true and living God based on the context. But it can also be used to describe those who were judges, those who were to represent God to the people. You might recall uh, how uh, Moses was begging off uh, from God's call to go to Egypt. He goes, oh, I... I'm not eloquent of speech, you know, I'm slow of tongue, you know, you need to find someone else to be able to do that. And God says, who made man's mouth, who makes the lame or the mute or the blind? Is it not I? He goes, your brother Aaron is eloquent. I will give you my words, you will give my word to him, and he will be as, you will be as God to him. Now, it doesn't say that Moses is divine, doesn't say that Moses is the creator of the universe, the sustainer, upholder of all things. It just says that Moses was going to be the one who received God's word and then would faithfully pass it on to Aaron in such a way that Aaron knew, catch this, this is really important, that to hear Moses speak, it wasn't Moses' takes. Moses wasn't going to offer his words about God, but God's words from his throne shared with Aaron, who and then could communicate it to the people. And so when we talk about Elohim, we use it in the very same way. And, and you know, when people push this too much or try to come up with uh, some kind of uh, way to get internet hits and sell books and so on and be different, you're really pushing things and making the Bible say something that it doesn't say. So, you know, my two cents worth on that whole controversy is just stick to the basics. Stick to what God has to say about all of this, and uh, when the Bible says that the gods of the nations are idols, they're literally nothings, they have no matter, they have no energy, they have no will, they have no intellect, as we saw in Psalm 95. They have they, no spirit. They are no things. So, you know, when people try to say, well, you know, there might be Zeus and Athena and these local deities and all this other stuff, they, they conflate the fact that there are fallen angels who might try to promote doctrines that lead people astray. Doctrines, note. But Teachings. Not, but they're not gods in any sense of the term. 
So when we, and this is again to reiterate your point, go back to the basics, if our interpretation or the ones handed to us by those who call themselves scholars, what should be our check to, ch to examine the conclusion, not the information, I'm sure they have a lot, but the conclusion with other plain statements in Scripture. And if they hand wave and say that doesn't mean what it says, well, it shows how far their scholarship should take you. Let's start in the book of Isaiah. We don't even have to go to the Shema, <laughs> right? Let's go to Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 10. You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. I, even I, and the Lord. Now, if that's true, then... And all this other stuff is not. Yeah, and we can continue. And just, and, you know, I would just focus in on that, you know, because as soon as you get into a let's trade scripture kind of marathon with these people, it ends up being a lot of dust and smoke and uh, confusion. Just stick to what the clear teaching of God's Word says. And if someone says, no, 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 that doesn't mean what it clearly says. It just says God is superior that, to all of these that, angels. That, uh, you know, that should be, you know, that should get your discernometer firing right away, because yeah. uh, that, that just, no. And no. let me do one more, because it's relevant to our Trinity discussion. Isaiah 44, 6, God speaking, thus says the Lord, don't take my word for it, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Now, that's not only important for this henotheism discussion, but then we go to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 17, where Jesus says, Do not be afraid. I, I am, am the, the first, first and, the and the last. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. So, in a wonderful sense, God, very God, was dead. In his life forevermore. And got time, just three got time uh, for one quick uh, follow-up question here. Uh, will we meet our loved ones when we are in heaven? If Jesus is your loved one. Yeah, well, first of all, yeah, you're going to definitely have someone there that you love there in heaven. I, you know, one of my favorite answers to that question, because it's so encouraging to me, is found in the book of Hebrews chapter 12, where we are told this. Uh, we are told, but you have come, this is verse 22, to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the God of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Describing heaven, we'll see Jesus there, we'll see Moses there, we'll see Old Testament saints there, but we'll also see the spirits of just men made perfect. How? by the blood of Jesus. So we will see our loved ones there and we'll recognize them for who they are. When uh, Moses and Elijah showed up at the Mount of Transfiguration, they weren't wearing name tags. And yet Peter, James, and John knew exactly where they were. We will too. All right. God bless you and we'll see you all again tomorrow. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.